welcome to another episode of our CI for Life. I am Rick Hyland with RLG International. This is a podcast for those individuals passionate about personal and professional continuous improvement. Our purpose is to provide current and future C-suite leaders the mindset, skill set, and tool set to become leaders of continuous performance improvement. Recently, I was asked a question, if you could only do one thing to change the performance of a company or department, what would you do? The condition was you can't change the team and it is a performance issue plaguing the company or department. The boss has put you in charge of improving a result. What would you do? My answer, I would identify the right leading indicators to focus on and then work it through an operating rhythm and performance improvement events. Today, I'd like to focus on the first simple but not easy part of that equation, finding the right leading indicator to drive a step change in performance. By the way, this applies for both personal and professional continuous improvement examples, as I'll illustrate here in a moment. When I first started in the continuous improvement business 30 years ago, we had to convince leaders of the value of tracking key performance indicators, or KPIs, in a smart format. Smart being specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and trackable. Today, every organization has goals and tracks reams of data, some of which are good lagging KPIs. The bigger issue today is too much data. People get overwhelmed with reports, KPIs, and data. The challenge is to find the right data and information that will truly drive clarity, engagement, and ultimately improvement. That's where the simplicity and importance of leading KPIs comes into place. Let's start with some definitions and examples. A lagging indicator is a measures goal achievement or attainment and is typically easy to measure but hard to influence. Where a leading indicator predicts goal achievement you can, that you can influence but can be more difficult to measure. In summary, a leading indicator influences or predicts, not always 100% prediction, or predicts future performance. A lagging indicator analyzes past performance. Let's look at several examples from, personal, from our personal and professional lives. For example, if our goal is to make money in the stock market and the lagging result is to uh, see what influences the Dow Jones Industrial Average, some of the most uh, powerful leading indicators people look at, and again, this is a situation where there's reams of data, so what are the most powerful predicting or leading indicators? Number one, jobs report or unemployment. Number two, corporate earnings. And three, interest rates. And my financial advisors, Kent Binning and Kurt Brown, also like consumer confidence index and interest rates. This illustrates the importance of finding the right leading indicators or KPIs to predict or influence your desired lagging result. Another example, weight loss. The lagging indicator is your number of pounds or the number of pounds lost. Focusing just on our weight, as we all know, isn't the answer. So what are the right leads or leading indicators that most highly influence the outcome? Two suggested leading indicators to influence weight loss. One, five 30-minute aerobic workouts per week. Number two, quality food intake intake as measured by under 100 carbs per day. These two powerful leading indicators have a significant influence on weight loss. Another personal CI example. Let's imagine that you had a goal to run a marathon injury-free, and I stress injury-free. The lagging result, and you can modify this goal obviously, but let's say you're trying to qualify for Boston and get a three hour and 20 minute 
based on your age, three hour and 20 minute marathon, three powerful leading indicators to help you achieve that lagging result. Number one, four quality runs per week, Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, and Saturday. And I'll break that down here in a second. Two of those runs on Tuesday and Thursday are three to five mile runs. Monday is the second indicator is your quality interval run of four miles. I'll explain that on Monday morning running four interval miles with three minute rests in between. Again, this would modify based on how fast you're trying to run a marathon. You can look online for more detail, but if you're trying to run a three hour and 20 minute marathon or three hour and 15, somewhere in there, you need four interval miles on a Monday morning. I recommend treadmill. A lot of people like the track of six uh, minutes and 30 seconds per mile with a three minute rest in between to build your capacity for speed. Then on Saturday, that's your long run. You start at your base. Let's imagine in this case that your base is six miles. And then each Saturday you increase 10% per week, no more, no less up to a maximum of 22 miles. You don't need to run the whole 26.2. And those uh, are the three leading indicators that will help you run a three hour and 20 minute marathon more details and to adjust your times look online another example of leading and lagging let's look at the business in our professional or in business and let's say the goal is to reduce or get zero serious injuries the lagging indicator is the number of serious injuries the leading indicator there could be three of them uh, or we recommend three of them to be the most powerful one the number of serious near miss investigations that will get you thinking about the big things that could really hurt or kill people. Number two, the number of planning events to avoid the next serious injury by your frontline teams. And number three, the number of safety leadership interventions per week. That's a really important one that engages leadership, heart and minds in, the, in capturing and working with their workforce. So I have a story of this where I've seen this work really well. In ConocoPhillips, Alaska, many years ago, under the leadership of Bill Arnold, Steve Bradley, and Wayne Fletcher and others, um, they had an example of at least tracking two of these uh, with the frontline teams and leadership to a very powerful result. Bill, Steve, and Wayne, working with our RLG team lead, Kirk Gibson and Ann McFarlane, had the team focus on two powerful leading indicators to reduce safety incidents. Number one, frontline crews with daily safety options safety observations. I remember sitting in a maintenance garage in the north slope of Alaska at 7 a.m. in the dark in the morning watching the maintenance crew sit in a circle and update their safety observation chart manually, recording the number of safety observations from the day before. The contract supervisor would ask their employees to raise their hand if they had a safety observation or learning yesterday. He would then record the number on a chart and that then asked several of them to share their observation or learning. It was a powerful example of employee engagement and leading metrics. At the same time, the operation leadership team was tracking their own leading metric. Every Friday morning, Bill Arnold and his leadership team would review this leadership team's safety interventions that week. A chart would go up on the wall with each team member's name and review how many safety interventions they had had that week versus target. A leadership safety intervention would be something like a number of safety meetings attended or number of safety behavioral interventions, etc. The end result of focusing on these two powerful leading indicators 
is that ConocoPhillips operations had zero recordable injuries that year, a significant improvement from the previous years. That is the power of finding the right leading metric. Okay, another personal continuous improvement example. The overarching goal is to compete in a mountain bike bike race. The lagging result is to come in first in your age class in a mountain bike race. I want to show that the principles of leading indicators uh, works also for something like this. And to help me with this, I, I invited my uh, friend and neighbor, Matt Crowley, to the podcast. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Matt's just down the street here, and he is our local endurance athlete expert. And uh, he's climbed Mount Everest. Yes, I said that out loud. The real Mount Everest, all 29,000 feet plus. Actually, I was just talking with Matt. It was last year this time that he did it. And uh, most recently, and the one I'll have him talk about as well, is he competed in the True Grit Epic in St. George, Utah. And he came in first place in a sprint finish in the 50-plus Masters category. In the overall Pro-Am category, he came in fifth out of all ages out of uh, over 560 finishers and many non-finishers in that race. Some of you may know as part of the National Ultra Endurance Race Series. So, um, Matt, welcome to the podcast. And I know we're going to spend time on uh, um, the race, but I wanted to, I know the listeners will be interested in your experience in Everest and, uh, and the research team looked it up and I just shared this with you and you knew it, but all 29,000 feet, five and a half miles up, um, 4,833 people have done it, and my friend Matt, one of them, and that is way, way less than 1% of the population, and uh, over 288 people have actually died attempting this. So as a neighborhood, we were excited about it, and I know your family was too. It was a great accomplishment, but Matt, before we get on to racing, tell us, like, how many days did it take? What was the hardest part? What were keys in your preparation, and would you ever do that again? Grab on any of those questions there. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting that you ask many of those questions because I'm actually watching some of the coverage right now because some of the teams are now in Nepal, okay, um, in Kathmandu, and many others will be arriving over the next week or so. And uh, from Kathmandu, they fly up to a little village. Um, called Lukla, and from there they trek into uh, Everest Base Camp in Nepal. Of course, you can uh, summit uh, Mount Everest from either the north or the south, so you can go from Nepal or from the Chinese side uh, in Tibet. But uh, yeah, people are up there now, and Mm. I'm watching earnestly as they uh, make their way up there and uh, as they start their trek, and uh, enjoy seeing some of the challenges that, that uh, I saw just uh, a year ago. So I went over there uh, last March uh, on the 22nd. I summited Mount Everest on May 21st mm. at about uh, 5.30 in the morning uh, as the sun came up uh, over the horizon. And, and you're so high up, you can almost, uh, uh, well, you can see the curvature of the earth. And really? uh, it was just spectacular to be on top of the uh, highest point in the world and uh, wow. be able to uh, have that accomplishment in my life. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of difficult parts. Um, I would say um, just dealing without oxygen would be the most physically demanding part of it. Okay. It's really difficult to describe to somebody, you know, what, uh, what that feels like. Um, 
if you've ever traveled up to a high point, you know, 10 or 12,000 feet, you know what uh, effect that has on your body, but then you multiply it times three, um, almost 30,000 feet and, uh, without oxygen. And, um, of course I, I use supplemental oxygen, but that only, um, has an effect of lowering your, uh, lowering you about 3000 feet of, or making you feel like you're about 3000 oh, 3, right? feet lower. So, and you also, I mean, there was days and days you were waiting for weather to break and isolation in a cold tent. Wasn't, that, wasn't there part of that? Yeah, uh, I would say that's probably the second most difficult part okay. was, you know, the physical demands, obviously, um, but you're the mental demands of climbing and being away from home for, you know, several months from your friends and family and loved ones. Um, and just, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, there is that, uh, there is that risk that you don't come back. So there's yeah. obviously that pressure on it as well, but, uh, uh, being, being cold is never fun, you know, mm. not having enough oxygen, being away from home for a long mm. time. I mean, all those things were, uh, very difficult, uh, um, obstacles to, to face. Anyhow, like I say, I want to get you on yeah. and talk more about that in detail, but let's talk, you've got other exciting things happening and it ties nicely into, uh, this podcast um, and I want to talk about that endurance race and I understand that wasn't your first time at that race and and uh, as I mentioned already you came in fifth way overall but first in your the master's category uh, which is an incredible accomplishment but that's not your first time right tell me about the last or the f first few times you tried that race so yeah I took up uh, uh, mountain bike racing at the end of 2014 did a local race here in Utah called the uh, Park City Point to Point. That was my first mountain bike race and uh, and first endurance mountain bike race. Hmm. And it took me about uh, almost nine hours to complete that race. And uh, it was a lot of suffering, and I kind of got the bug to keep on doing it. So the following year in 2015, there, uh, there was this race in St. George called the True Grit Epic, and I wanted to do it, but I didn't have a lot of experience. Uh, went over my handlebars and came down right on my head, um, completely uh, split open my uh, helmet, helmet and uh, I had a severe concussion. Okay. So I was out for that year um, for 2015. Um, and the following year I uh, was riding in the race and uh, once again, went over my handlebars, not in the same place, but uh, broke two ribs. Oh. And that took me out of the race. Um, then I completed it. And then in 2017 and uh, did okay. I think I was in the top 10 of uh, my uh, age group at the time. Okay. And then in 2018, uh, I was trying to compete uh, to win um, newly in my, uh, you know, 50 plus master's group. Welcome to the and group. I, I had the unfortunate uh, uh, circumstance where I had two flat tires, and that took me out of the running uh, okay. to, to compete for first place. So 2019, this year, you know, I felt like uh, I had the, the training and, and uh, felt like I could compete um, to try to win and uh, came down to a sprint finish between me and a guy from Southern California down in San Diego and okay. I edged him out at the line after three hours and 45 minutes. So oh. it was a fun race. Wow. Yeah. Wow. A lot of, ob a lot of obstacles in the past. 
Yeah. Concussions, broken ribs, flat tires. Yeah. And that's what this podcast is all about is continuous improvement. And uh, that's why I wanted you on to discuss because you are uh, an embodiment of this principle in many aspects of your life. And here now, Matt, tell me, let's talk uh, some of the leading indicators you do in your preparation. And and I'll uh, uh, try to uh, kind of translate that into some of the other learnings we've had on these podcasts. But Tell me, what are the, if I only let you do two or three things for leading indicators that helps you prepare to get first in your age category and fifth overall, what would you say? I'd probably say the first thing would be my, you know, my fitness level as compared to the competition. Okay. You know, you have to go in with uh, a certain level of fitness to be able to compete. Um, And uh, so you have to be, you know, you have to have a, a high power to weight ratio i mean you can be a powerful cyclist but if you weigh too much you know it's uh, difficult to get up and down the hills so you got you have to have a kind of a delicate balance where you're you know as thin and light as possible but you still can put out maximum amount of effort and power for yeah. your weight so um so your fitness is obviously ex- extremely important um you know having the uh enough time on your bike doing the the long rides that uh give you a lot of endurance, uh, getting your power to the point where, you know, your, your power to weight ratio is, is competitive. So you have to go in with the high level of fitness. I think that would probably be the most important thing. As, okay. uh, I looked at this race. Probably the second thing would be just, you know, your skills on a mountain bike. Okay. You know, I told you about, you know, going over my handlebars yep. and frankly, this year, uh, I actually had another accident one week before the race. I was, pre-riding the course, went over my handlebars very slowly, sprained my wrist. So I went into the race with a sprained wrist and made it a little more difficult. I had it, you know, taped up by uh, a friend here. I was having a difficult time even shifting during oh, the first right? part of the race okay. until the tape started to loosen up a little bit. And then, you know, being able to just uh, pull your handlebars up and to get over some of these rock features made it difficult. So I think, you know, having uh some skills on a mountain bike you have to have some skills to kind of navigate some of these more technical type of uh courses on a mountain bike where you know if you're on a road bike and you're just you know on a flat you know course you know there's not as many skills that are involved that uh you would need to have when you're racing a mountain bike and is how how do you know if your skill level is improving how do, how do you look at that like if i was to go out there and say how do i improve my skill level is that time in saddle? Is it taking technical course uh, rides? What what is it? How do I improve that? To be specific about this particular course, you know, you learn what areas are the most difficult and the most technical, and you okay. ride those particular parts over and over and over again until you can, you know, quote unquote, clean those sections oh. uh, with uh, with grace and and with speed. So. Uh, you do a lot of practicing on those technical features, knowing exactly where the lines are, because if you go six inches to either direction, sometimes it's, uh, you know, you can go over your handlebars and crash and be out of a race real fast. Sounds like a dance routine. Clean it up. Okay. Got yeah. It. You got to clean, clean, yeah. clean up the, uh, clean up the skills so you can get down up and down. This year I had a lot of trouble getting up some of the features, um, because of my wrist giving me problems, you know, it was more difficult for me to, you know, pull up on my pull handlebars up. and lift my wheel over some of the features. So that was just one, one more difficult thing, you know? Yeah. 
I was expecting out of this conversation, one, I wanted to hear about Everest, but I, I knew you were going to tell me about the fitness, weight, miles, time, you know, building your capacity between power and, and weight, but very interesting on the skills level and then, of course, equipment and nutrition like that. Hey, Matt, excellent insights. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on this segment and talking about this. And I do want to have you on again and talk about Everest in more detail. But for now, thank you very much and uh, take care. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, example number five of leading indicators is a shutdown or turnaround. Many of our clients have big maintenance shutdowns of their equipment, some very regularly in three or four day increments, some in 30, 60 day increments, very expensive, very important, high risk for safety and environmental. So this is a very critical area for anybody manufacturing wise. So to discuss this area, I have invited our turnaround expert, Cesare Goch to the podcast. Caesar, welcome to the podcast. Hello everyone. <laughs> How are you today? I'm very good, thanks. Where are you? I'm at uh, Sinclair Oil Refinery right now, and uh, we're getting ready for next year, big turnaround. Very good. Uh, well, thanks for joining us for a few minutes to talk about turnarounds and leading indicators. Tell people where you get that awesome accent from. <laughs> I'm Polish-born, Canadian citizen, living in the U.S., and working whenever RLG sends me. <laughs> Very good. How many turnarounds, Caesar? You've been with us for over 12 years. And you are our main turnaround and maintenance expert. What, how many turnarounds have you been involved in planning and execution of with our many clients around the world? Yes, yeah, so I participated in 42 turnarounds um, within 22 refineries. Very good. So this, uh, folks, is uh, Caesar is very qualified to help us discuss about finding simple, powerful leading indicators that can predict or influence a uh, um, uh, very successful turnaround or shutdown for uh, in the maintenance environment. So, Caesar, I know this is hard, but I'm committing you to only two leading indicators in the, both the planning phase and the execution phase. Let's talk planning first. And, and uh, as you know well, clients are planning for these very big ones as far as two years out and uh, all throughout and before execution. So, if you were to pinpoint one or two leading indicators for good planning, where would you direct us? Okay, two elements. So first one, um, milestones and deliverables of the planning process. So it's extremely important to know where you are in the planning process. Therefore, tracking milestones and deliverables versus plan is uh, extremely important. There may be as many as 650 of them, and uh, within a two to three years period, therefore, that's the number one KPI, I would say. Okay. And how do you recommend actually tracking that and reviewing that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, absolutely. So uh, each of the milestones or deliverables has a due date. Um, therefore, it's easy to track and know if we uh, are finished on time or not. Um, we know what's coming. Um, therefore, we can be uh, proactive throughout the planning process. Um, reviewing at least weekly uh, on a core staff meeting and the steering committee meetings. Very good. Okay, I like the weekly uh, element to that in the core team meetings. So, Caesar, I'll give you one more in planning. What's your next best one leading indicator? Um, work packs. 
So that's uh, something that uh, entire tournament is centered around. Okay. And uh, therefore, um, it's important to track status of the work packs. And uh, you need to know a, a detail behind it. So you not only need to track work packs for capital projects, but also uh, work packs or work orders, depends on the refinery, uh, for uh, turnaround and maintenance. And um, you can go really into a detail uh, behind it. So uh, how many uh, of them uh, issued for information? How many f issued for construction? Uh, how many in P6? How many linked in P6? And so on. And obviously split between the engineering and the turnaround. Okay, so the measurable part of that, and again, could be reviewed weekly, monthly in their meetings, is number of, right? So number of requests well, for information completed versus plan. Is that the measurable part? Always versus plan. Okay. So once I know the total number of uh, work packs, work orders, mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to determine how many I'm expecting to do every week yep. or every month, and therefore it's always measured against the plan. What I like about work packs too is that's kind of even more granular than the dates or milestones that you've talked about before. So it kind of is a leading of a leading uh, for better planning and kind of gets behind, makes it more granular. So, okay, anything else in planning you want to sneak in uh, that's critical as far as leading indicators before we move on to execution? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, how do you measure so, that? So uh, typically um, there's an additional process after scope freeze date, there's a process that... Uh, um, allows for extra work to come into uh, a planning. And uh, different refineries um, measure that differently, but it could be measured as a, um, a simple number of the extra work, or um, it could be estimated. So I, that's what I prefer, uh, to know how much uh, extra uh, value or extra money I'm adding to the scope. And do you prefer it measured in like number of work orders, uh, uh, dollars? What, what, what's your preference or recommendation? Uh, do dollar, dollar value, definitely. Okay, dollar value. Okay. So there it is, folks. If you're involved in shutdowns, turnarounds, best leading indicators to predict excellence in planning is milestones and deliverables versus plan. And as Caesar says, that can be very granular and up to 650 milestones, depending on size and scope. And then work packs. And, um, and then again, that's measurable in numbers uh, versus a plan. And then scope growth in dollars. Uh, and again, tracked weekly, monthly in the different parts of the operating rhythm. Okay, Caesar, execution. What are your top two? Uh, plan versus actual again. So earn value uh, versus planned uh, um, um, value of, uh, of the schedule. So um, where are we in a schedule that um, we we're putting in the last two years uh, together, uh, plan versus actual. So where, how often do we track that and look at that? Okay, we look at that daily. So uh, typically uh, on execution, daily execution meetings, this is where we would look at uh, um, that KPI. And uh, that KPI would be split between overall um, and then by contractor or a critical piece of equipment. Okay, and that's a good point there. Focus on the critical path or near critical path. Okay, Caesar, one more in execution. What else do you like to use for leading? Um, 
so daily um, manpower plan versus actual. This is a really important uh, indicator um, as it will tell me if I'm going to be late in the next day or two with my deliverables and my earn value or not. So um, um, I can react to that and uh, move uh, my workforce around. Uh, very important KPI. Okay, so and again, our clients are spending somewhere in millions to hundreds of millions on these big shutdowns and turnarounds. And uh, your recommendation is three, these three solid leading indicators in planning, and then these two in execution, and then you guarantee first first quartile result, right, Caesar? Well, top second quartile. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Caesar, really appreciate you joining us t today on the podcast and take care. Thank you. Okay, let's look at another example of leading indicators that help us achieve the lagging results we're after. This one's a business example, big capital projects. And of course, the lagging goals or results we're after is on time, on budget with no injuries. And many of our clients are spending so much money here with mixed results. So I invited one of our internal RLG experts, my colleague and friend, Kirk Gibson, who's been involved in many uh, capital projects. Uh, to join me here and talk about powerful leading indicators. Kirk, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, great. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Um, like you said, I'm on a big, very large mega capital project. We're ramping up into peak construction, so getting pretty busy. Headcounts increasing, uh, clear communication of priorities of work are really important right now. So we're, we're staying pretty busy. Good. I caught you at the right time there. You're right in the middle of it. So, Kirk, just before we get going, share with the listeners some of your personal and professional background. Sure. So I've been with RLG for just over 12 years now. Uh, I've led our work at the front line as a project manager, managed our services at the, the client level and senior client level. And, and I'm now doing a bit of both working with a large RLG team on a capital project. Um, prior to RLG was an MBA. And prior to that, I was an army officer. And the reason I mentioned that is because the experience highlights kind of the core of what you want to talk about. Um, an officer's job is to deliver that commander's intent that those clear expectations um, following that of the expectations was real accountability. You know, did you deliver against the plan you put forward? And, and the challenge was you, you couldn't pay your people more or give them anything special. You, you just had to get the most out of them all the time. And when they knew if they were winning or losing, they would generally give you their best. And I've found the same thing with the non-military workforce that when they know if they're winning or losing, they're going to perform for you. Well, and we're going to talk more about that. And one of the reasons I asked you to join the podcast on this segment is because of your experience in finding good leading indicators to unlock clarity and simplicity at the front line. And I have already shared on the podcast the, exact, the Alaska safety example. Um, what insights, before we get going into the capital project leading indicators, do you have a, an insight on, on finding and choosing the right leading indicator? Sure. I think the first thing is the right filter. And because there's so many things you can measure as you get closer and closer to that front line, but it really has to be something that that front line guy or gal can directly influence. It has to be fully in their control. Uh, for example, if you're measuring something that could be affected by an outside force, they're going to feel like it's unfair or they're a victim of something, and, and they may be right. So for example, you can't hold a driver accountable for on-time delivery if the warehouse is ultimately the one responsible for loading his truck on time, or if he has no control over the maintenance of his truck. Um, so if the warehouse loads him out slowly or a truck breaks down, then he looks bad. Um, those are inputs to his success that he can't control. But he can be measured for things like miles driven safely, uh, delivering loads undamaged, uh, navigating to the right destinations, things like that, that again, directly in his or her uh, control. Excellent insight. So find the thing, the item, 
the measurable that they can heavily influence and so they can feel empowered by that. So let's go right to capital projects and finding the right leading indicator. As we've talked about, this is a huge issue for many of our global clients. And um, what have you found to be the keys to successful capital project execution? So, you know, we've looked at a lot of different sites and I think it keeps coming back to, you know, three things that we're looking at and, and they cast down, they cascade down from the very top right down to the front line. So the first one is how much work are you doing, right? This is the measure of hours worked or quantities installed. And, and this is pretty typical. This is always measured um, in, in capital projects. The second one is how efficiently are you doing this work? And that's the productivity factor or money spent on hours versus hours actually earned against your schedule. So for a dollar spent, what percentage of that was applied directly to work and schedule progress? And again, this is something else that's typically measured. Um, the one that the third thing that's typically not measured enough is around schedule adherence. You know, was the work that you did, even if you did it really well, was the work you did actually against the plan and schedule you have in front of you? So Again, like I said, those first two are essentially the, the CPI, SPI curves, right? The, the cost performance and schedule performance indicators. Um, but they just aren't typically broken down very well. So management will often look at the first two because they feel like progress and cost um, are, are really important. And that's salient to the business discussion. But there's very little asked about that third one. And when it's not measured, what's unfortunate is that you can have a great story of a lot of hours worked efficiently, but none of the right things were done or things were done which will later on be in your way. Okay. So let's look at some examples of uh, some leading indicators that help set up this common understanding of priorities for, for these teams for daily, weekly, and monthly success. Okay. Cool. Great. So I, I want to focus on that third one, the schedule compliance. Okay. So in my experience, and this is both with maintenance organizations and here within capital projects, it's it's oddly the most missing metric. And again, a lot of managers look at the work versus spend ratio, but it's not often you see a good discussion on are we working on the right things. It, it, and that's unfortunate because there's often a ton of time put into building a high-level schedule and then breaking it down and each uh, craft and construction manager building out a detailed three-week plan and their 90-day plans. They put a lot of effort into building a plan of execution. Time and, ex and expense, right, Kirk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's <laughs> departments of people doing this and, and everyone's giving it their best effort. Yep. So there, there's a lot of effort and emotional energy going into this too. But absent that schedule compliance metric, you have craft leaders working on what they think is the right work. They're putting in good, honest effort too. They want to do a great job, but they're they're given the flexibility to prioritize the work fronts or, or repair orders. And that's not really that their decision to make. And worse yet is that some organizations will look just at those first two, uh, those first two metrics about how much did you do or how efficiently did you do it, and they'll reward leaders uh, who earn a lot of hours or install a lot of quantities without ever looking at if it was the right stuff or not. So you can have those great earnings and great productivity, but fast forward a year and you could have put this, the work site in a lot of trouble. So for example, if you do a great job efficiently digging a trench and you earn those hours and you meet the hours hourly commitment, um, but later on, later in the year, that trench is in the way of a critical crane placement. Or you erect some steel and you earn the quantities of steel erection, but then it's in the way of a pipe installation later on. So again, that's why it's so important that well, they, they follow me, the plan. Yeah, let me just interrupt you there because I, sure. I want you to share some specifics around this. But I think you know if we could wave a magic wand on one thing the construction industry would do differently, it would be this. And uh, they're working hard. They're putting in long hours to complete these big capital projects, but to follow the schedule versus just progressing work, 
is an insight that uh, if we could get better at, it would improve productivity, safety, cost, everything. Mm -hmm. that, that's right. So, and it, it's hard. I'm not sure why there's these emotional barriers sometimes to measure the, the schedule adherence. I don't think it was needed before. You know, I've heard that conventional wisdom in, in construction and capital projects was just keep making progress, just keep going, yeah. keep building. And uh, now that they're getting more granular in how they build their work packs, following the plan is, is almost more important. And that's that hasn't quite caught on yet, I don't think. So, you know, that was starting at the very at the high level around um, the importance of schedule compliance. And, you know, but how do we measure that? How do you turn that into a leading indicator? And I'll talk as this sort of cascades down through the workforce. And let, let's start at the superintendent level first. Okay. So what we do is we have them talk about uh, schedule adherence in a really simple way that, again, is completely within their control. So they have each week they map out their plan for the week. The superintendent's job is one of building out the plan and, and delegating out who is going to do the work and which foreman and general foreman are going to be over it. And what our team does is we put up a drawing of the construction work area where they're going to be. And on that drawing, we put a, a text box over where their work is scheduled to be done. And in the box is the work package number and the boxes are different colors for you know, different superintendent and different crafts, green for iron workers, red for steam, steam fitters, whatever. And, and it's a large site. So there's lots of boxes all over the drawing. It, you know, making that easier to picture. So just imagine a 3D drawing of your own house, okay? And, okay? and your job, you're the superintendent of your house. Your job is to change a light bulb in the garage. In that case, we'd put a box over the garage with your name on it and the task change light bulb next to it. It's, it's the same concept here. And these guys will go up, these superintendents will go up at the end of the week and they have to mark yes or no in their colored box over their work area that they did work against the packages they had in their plan. They go to the drawing, grab a marker, and simply write on the box if they worked on that package or not. You know, did you work on changing that light bulb? Maybe you didn't finish it, but it was part of your plan and you worked on it. So, for example, if they have 10 packages to touch that week, so 10 different boxes, and only six of them get a mark, then we say they're 60% schedule compliant. And that's a very simple math. Um, mm -hmm. There's not a ton of schedule logic to it, and it's not tied into any big scheduling platform like a Primavera. But what comes out, though, is when they see only 60% of their planned work was touched, it, is that they either overplanned their work and they didn't get to a lot of it, or they did other work that wasn't in their plan. So they have to scratch their heads and they have to speak in front of their, their construction management team and their peers about why did they only get 60? And, and they start to reflect back uh, on, on their week and how they made decisions on what they did. Or they talk about needs, that things that were in their way that they could have talked about a week ahead of time. But Instead, they were a victim of those things. And I'll definitely say that some of those guys weren't really comfortable doing that at first. You know, they, they feel exposed when they got 60% and their, their peer got 80%. But that accountability made them a little uncomfortable. But we coached the management to keep the process going. Um, and it really only took about two weeks. And these superintendents started finding ways to stay focused on their work throughout the week and, and maybe do a better job communicating the plans to their general foreman and why they had to stick to the plan, even if they felt like they should be doing something else. Um, but finding the win and being more schedule compliant. And whereas before they might have done great work, it wasn't always the right work, so they were always behind. But th this helped them feel like they were winning once they started to see how they can control that number. So now, if for, we take that down to the oh, – yeah, go ahead. Just before you take it down to the next level, what coaching would you give people? Because this happens a lot in our work, as you know, that work starts to be presented and there's that – I don't know if it's embarrassment or the uncomfortable with seeing that I'm below other teams or peers – what coaching would you give to leaders to make sure that they stick with that or, or how to make it work, even though the frontline may not be that enthusiastic about it yet? 
Sure. Well, I guess it's it's twofold. You know, the first kind of blunt answer is that if you're in um, in a work site in a in a work team and there's no healthy tension, then you got to ask some tougher questions, right? Uh, okay. you, you need to have that tension around accountability, and you should be able to feel that. But the second part is accountability is not a bad word, and it, it's not a career ender. It's the kind of thing that when we're there or as a leader, you can talk to those folks and maybe pick one or two that understand schedule adherence first. You know, we had a lot of new superintendents that just they didn't understand their numbers. They kind of understood how to build the plan, but they didn't understand how their plan turned into those lagging indicators that were about the business. And so find the ones that can do it right and and have have them model it first. Set and, them up and, for success. Yeah, 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 set them up, tell them what they're doing, and, and tell them, hey, you only got 40%, but we're going to have a good discussion why, and you're not in trouble. I just want to hear why you yeah. think you got 40%, right? And make, make it, it about safe. the learning. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the guys really enjoy that, and it builds a lot of trust in the organization, and uh, it, it's fun to watch them step into that space mm. and look for the wins. Good, good answer. Okay, let's go down to the next level on the craft side then. Sure. So let's take that down. Again, this is about con what they can control. And, you know, at the craft level, you know, these guys are they're hungry to do the work and, and to do it well. Um, and nothing upsets these frontline guys more than going to work on something and they get their tools and their area set up and they do their pre-job and the paperwork. And then they're told they have to go work on something else. They get sort of jerked around throughout yeah. the day. There's no meaning or achievement felt in an unorganized day of reactive work. Um, and you know we saw we've seen that on a number of different work sites and and recently we built a tool for a, a pipe fabrication team that really helped them know exactly what they had to work on that week. Uh, it's just it's basic visual management, but it's a tool that that doesn't exist in the current work face planning process. Uh, that process goes down to a certain level, uh, maybe to a superintendent level with the drawings and the schedule, but there's nothing that speaks directly to the crew doing the work. So in this case. It was a matrix of activity. So I want you to picture, uh, this is pipe fabrication. So they're setting up the big spools on stands, and then you have to weld it, and you have to hydro test it, and things like that. All those activities are listed at the very top of this matrix. And then along the left-hand side was a list of about 40 different pipe spools uh, that, they, that were available to work on. So prior to us showing up, they were working on kind of whichever one they were told was ready for work. Um, and what wasn't clear to them was that there really was a certain order they needed to be fabricated and tested and then delivered out to the work site. Um, they were just kind of picking and choosing of those 40 what was what was available. Well, this one's close by. This one we don't need the crane for. This one we have the, the flanges ready to go. That, that was how they're making the decisions. But it was really critical to the bigger picture that these things were completed in a certain order. Maybe the foreman knew that, but I, I don't think he did. And the schedule that they had went to a level four, but it just didn't have the specific details on what should happen by priority each week. Um, the foreman was doing his best to keep everyone working and moving, but on what? And it's back to that question, was it the right work? So I worked with the piping superintendent, and um, I asked him to simply highlight in that matrix um, of you know 12 tasks at the top and 40 different cell, uh, spools that they could work on, so you know 400 cells or so, Highlight those with a marker, you know, which should be worked on that week. You know, so as an example, step six, set up hydro test, should be done to spools 32, 36, 38. And if you go do that task and go down the list of those spool numbers, the superintendent simply just colored in the cells to designate them as priority work for the week. Um, maybe 12 to 15 cells would be highlighted on Monday, and the guys would initial and date in each one when they were done. 
Mm. And it was fun to see them do that, right? They they enjoyed it. Like, and we got this one done. And they all smile and clap. And they put the date they did it in their initials. And, you know, not only did they see their own progress every day, but they knew they were doing the right work. Um, leadership knew they were doing the right work and, and rewarded them. And, and most importantly, as we showed them how to use this to drive their work, you know, we were we told them, don't wait until Friday to say you couldn't get something done. If it's Wednesday and you know you won't get to one of those yellow highlighted cells, then bring it up. Say something on Wednesday. Elevate your needs and concerns early. And that was another space that they just weren't used to doing. These guys are proud of their work. They don't like to be a victim of anything. So sometimes that prevents them from asking for help. Um, but this gave them permission to do that. And, you know, I'll say this has gone really well so far. You know, when I first put it up, I explained it to the foreman and his yeah. crew came over to, to kind of see, like, what did this big plotted doubt sheet of paper that this consultant guy taped up to their wall? And, and the foreman explained it to them. And my favorite moment was this when, you know, the big the big workforce dude, the biggest guy in the crew just said, stop. So wait a minute. So if I don't and know what to do. you're thinking this is trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, great. He's going to say, oh, flavor of the week. We've seen this yeah. before. Blah, blah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the big negative. And he said, wait, if I don't know what to do. I just look at the chart, find something in yellow, and I go do that. I don't have to wait for a foreman to tell me what to do next. And I said, that's pretty much it. And he was thrilled. He gave me a big high five. And, you know, he knew how to win that week. And he was just really excited about that. Oh, that's a great story. So in order to find the right leading indicator, make it simple, make it clear, make it visible. And then something that the guys can actually keep updated. The other part of the story that... I didn't pick up initially, Kirk. This is really about customer service as well. Like you are getting the right product to these different work areas at the right time because they got constraints and variables going on as well. And rather than just what materials do you have ready and most convenient. So it's also a customer service story. Okay, any anything else you want to highlight in that story? Great, great example. Uh, you know, I think just going back to that, as you look for these leading numbers or these frontline metrics, it has to be really within their control. Um, otherwise, there's a million reasons why they failed at it or they weren't able to get it done. So, Love it. Thank you for breaking down this example into a very granular level. Kirk, thanks for joining us. Uh, have a great week. Cheers. Thanks, Rick. You do the same. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. If I could only do one thing to create a step change in performance. I would spend time finding the right leading indicators that influence that end result. For personal continuous improvement, spend your time focusing on the right measurable leading indicators that will improve your performance. For endurance activities, focus on your overall fitness as described by three leading indicators, quality and quantity of caloric intake, interval speed work, and long runs or bike rides that build endurance. For professional challenges, focus on the leading indicators that influence or predict future success. Create clear, influenceable, visible metrics that the frontline and management can focus on and improve. Usually one leading indicator doesn't correlate or predict 100% to the lagging indicator, but usually two or three clear and influenceable, influenceable activities can give strong direction to your team and provide one version of the truth. Don't overwhelm yourself or your team either by providing too many key performance indicators. Don't be continuous improvement lazy. Find the right two or three leading KPIs to create clear focus and accountability so the team is clear on what your expectations are. As illustrated by the capital project example, when you break down tasks uh, specific, clear, and sequenced at the granular level, it is very empowering to the individuals involved. A key to companies or people with a strong execution culture is that they understand the leading indicators of success. They enjoy the process of focusing on what they can control and influence 
and strive continually for process excellence. The joy is truly in the leading indicator journey. I'd like to thank our special guests on this podcast, Cesare Goch and Kirk Gibson of RLG International and Matt Crawley, endurance athlete extraordinaire. Today's podcast was produced and supported by Doug Ozero and Lara Mickle of RLG International. Until next time, this is Rick Highland with RLG International with questions. Email me directly at rickh at rlginternational.com. Share with me your learnings and success stories. Live a life of sustainable continuous improvement. Goodbye for now.